Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. This is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you would like a free sample copy, head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I'm speaking with Mim Skinner. Mim spent two years working in a women's prison, an experience she's written about in her new book, Jailbirds. She's also co-founder of Refuse, a cafe that reuses food that would have been sent to landfill and which offers employment opportunities to ex-offenders. I caught up with Mim during one of her shifts at the cafe. We like to dive right in there and ask about your faith. So can you tell me a bit about how you became a Christian? I would say I've probably always been a Christian in that I don't remember a time when I didn't feel both loved by God and and created. But I guess I uh, developed a faith that was more my own around the time I came to university and kind of found my own way in church. But yeah, I'm very, very blessed to say that I've always felt quite comfortable in my faith and always felt quite sure in it. So what kind of church did you go to growing up? We went to quite a happy, clappy, house churchy type thing when we were growing up. And uh, actually, like many people my age, I've gone back in my in my recent years to something more liturgical. And I go to a, a very um, quiet and inclusive Anglican church now, um, which is very, very different to my kind of hyper-spiritual house church that we grew up in. So why did you make that decision to choose a more traditional church? A couple of reasons, really. I think that traditional Anglican churches can sometimes be better at dealing with sadness and death and including things that are sad and sombre in worship, whereas you go to evangelical churches, I think they're, they're less good at confronting the sad things in life. And I started to choose my own church after my first parent died, my dad. And uh, I guess I felt it was important to find a church where there was space for sadness and space for for unresolved sadness and not a sadness that needs to be qualified with. But it's all fine because God's here because actually life is much more complicated than that. And the other thing that was really important to me is that uh, my church was LGBT inclusive and that it created space from people with very diverse backgrounds, um, which I've been able to find at my Anglican church. And how would you describe your relationship with God now? I guess it changes. There's some very kind of core beliefs that haven't changed, that God came to earth in the person of Jesus and the importance of the resurrection and the importance of the community of the church. But yeah, I guess my relationship with God now feels much more practical than it did when I was younger. And when I was younger, it felt always it was about like how I felt and did I have these kind of moments of connection with God and did I feel God? And and now I guess it's a little bit more um, practical, which is, you know, both a good thing and a bad thing. I think there's definitely a place for both. But now my face expresses itself uh, in quite physical ways, in the cafe that we run, in the food that we eat together, almost in a kind of Old Testament Jewish way where there are kind of rituals and, and meals that, that feel important in in how I practice my faith. And do you still have those moments where you feel God? I do, but I would say that those feel less all or nothing now. I think I used to used to be in a place where 
those moments of feeling God, you know, meant you had a faith or, or you didn't or meant God was there or he wasn't. And actually that provides quite an inconsistent faith. Whereas now I feel kind of, yeah, they're much more grounded in practices that we do every day and prayers that we do every day. And, and I don't necessarily need to have those moments of, of feeling to make my faith true and make my faith important mm-hmm. in a way that I used to when I was a teenager. And Mimi, you've talked in the past about having quite rigid opinions that came tumbling down once you lived in community. It was that part of that whole process of, of changing, mm, changing church and changing the way you related to God? Yeah, and, and, and that part of me living in the community was that I spent a lot of time with people who um, were struggling with homelessness and addiction and, and being in and out of prison, but had these really firm and important and life-giving faiths. And I'd been taught this kind of black and white version of testimony where we have these chaotic lives and then we meet Jesus and then everything is, you know, kind of sinless and shiny. And, and that's the way we like to tell testimonies on stages at conferences. And, and what I found was people who were inspiring and had really profound faith, but it didn't look like a finished product and it didn't look like a before and after and people who had found faith and not found recovery from addiction. And, you know, we talk about in these terms, like being set free from this thing. And as soon as you ask for it, God's going to give it to you. And as soon as you meet Jesus, you know, there's no change that can hold you back. And actually that doesn't fit with lots of people's experience of faith where that doesn't happen. And where we have to look at faith in a more nuanced way. And, you know, it's not sort of everything you ask will be given to you. Um, but that we come to faith and we still struggle with sadness and addiction and confusion. So I guess the kind of introduction of more nuance and a a walk away from that quite black and white, um, we call them glory stories, where we kind of take someone's story and and frame it in a before and after shot um, rather than talking about a journey. And that's that's the way I framed my testimony for a long time because that's the way we see them spoken about, this kind of, I was this and now I'm this. Mm. And actually, you're human before you have a faith in your human after. And, and I guess some of the nuance uh, that I learnt from living in community and meeting people with really different experiences of faith um, challenged those ideas for me. And while you were at university, Mim, um, that was at Durham, you began opening your student mm-hmm. house to homeless people. What led you and your friends to do that? I guess we'd just been exploring community living. We'd read uh, Shane Claiborne's book, um, The Irresistible Revolution, which is a, a, a bit of a must-read for anyone thinking about community living. Um, we'd also uh, spent a lot of time kind of dreaming together about things we might do in the city. And we knew a lot of people who were homeless. And so it was just it was a year after we graduated and, and we were exploring a lot of these things. And uh, a few of us got together and just said, well, why don't we just do it? You know, it kind of talks in acts about if you have extra, you know, give to somebody else. Don't kind of hold on to these extra spare rooms and extra food, um, but open the doors and share it. And so that kind of led to the beginning of that journey. And what sort of response did you get from, from other students or, or people at your church about what you were doing? Do you know, it was often quite fearful. Um, I was pulled up a couple of times because I invited other people in to join in and that meant spending time with people who were using drugs and were withdrawing from drugs and uh, yeah I was I was told off a couple of times by people who were quite fearful of, of whether that was something that was unsafe. How, how did you respond to that? 
Yeah, I kind of I was incredibly frustrated by it because actually I think that we're not called to be safe and we're not called to be to be guarded and fearful and actually if you stand by people who are having a really rough time then you are going to see that and you are going to experience it but I don't think we're called to kind of stay in stay in our safe churches so I felt really frustrated that that kind of wasn't happening and I guess I've now come to a, a place again where I think do you know what people's expression of faith looks really different and for some people that looks like a kind of quite risky living with people who are quite chaotic um, and there could present dangers but for some people it looks like having a family and that being a really protective space um we don't do that anymore uh since we've opened a community cafe uh, in chester street and that's our kind of hub of community that's where we eat together that's where we feed people and for me having my work as a really really communal space where i'm very very available has meant that i'm i've now kind of retreated to having quite a private space in my home and I'm married now and my husband and I live in a little house and we have people around two or three times a week but actually it's quite a safe space for us. Um, so I can understand now, again, with more nuance that it isn't right for everyone to fling open the doors. Um, but at the time it felt very important for us. And while you were at university, Mim, you were studying politics and philosophy but you've gone on to sort of do activism and social enterprises and we'll talk a bit about that in a minute. But was that always the plan after university? Did you always feel that you were going to start a business and work within the area of social justice? No, not really. I always thought I'd be a journalist or writer, which I am now. Um, so <laughs> it kind of comes full circle. But I guess I was kind of working out what to do. And I knew I wanted to live in this community house. So we were kind of living in there. But on top of that, for us at the beginning, uh, I just spent time working in a coffee shop to keep that dream going of, of living in community and living in a very open way. But I had living community with me and, and sharing room with me, a very dear friend of mine, Nikki, and she's a real entrepreneur. So she's the kind of driving force behind the Refuse Cafe. I'm perhaps the, the Robin to her Batman. And uh, yeah, working with her and having these dreams together um, just was very enabling, and very encouraging. And so we, yeah, started the journey of uh, starting a, a food waste recycling business and a community space. Uh, and that's kind of grown from that. We started uh, as a community pop-up cafe, so we'd pop up kind of once a month. Um, we used food that would otherwise have gone to waste. At the beginning, that was very low-key, so it would run from our house, and we'd do lots of bin raiding, and uh, yeah, it would be kind of quite informal. Now, since April uh, last year, we've opened a very, very large warehouse and community cafe space in Chesterley Street. We turn over now over a tonne of food a week from a number of different sources and we supply food for other charities as well as private catering and we employ people with barriers to employment in our catering business and we have the charity Handcrafted who run a, a training kitchen on site training up people in nutrition and cooking and hygiene and and we run the pay-as-you-feel cafe and five days a week where people are able to come in and eat food. And some people pay with money and some people pay with their time or skills. And that process is anonymous so people can feel really free to pay in the way that they'd like. So that has been open, yeah, since since April last year now and is, it kind of has five staff members. So it's a, a, it feels kind of a, a big growth from when we started in our city room full of cabbages. But it's been a really amazing space in terms of people coming in and putting their stamp on it and other groups that have, have grown from it and work here as well. 
And uh, last year at the cafe, um, I read a news story about somebody stealing a week's worth of the takings. And I found your response really interesting. So you apologised to the person and said, you know, we wish we, we would have been able to, be, to help them more. Um, how are you able to respond in such a gracious way? Mm, I'm a friend. I, I was less gracious and that that lovely response was written by Nikki. <laughs> and I think I was really cross. I don't think I was quite as kind. And it took me, uh, I'm going to say, about a week to come round uh, to Nikki's response. But I think that is what you sign up to. You know, you, we don't sign If we want to come alongside and love and have community in a really meaningful way with people whose lives might be complicated for whatever reason, then actually sometimes that looks like getting robbed. And that is a bit of the the package that you sign up for. And actually that is balanced out by the huge number of people who give very selflessly to this community and give very selflessly um, to our customers that come in. Mm. And so actually I think we felt quite buoyed by the response and the coming together of our volunteers and the people the people who came and said, oh, you know, have this envelope with £50 in from this week's wages because we love this space and we believe in this space. And so, yeah, we just felt very... The grace of, of the people that give back was just far outweighed, um, yeah, the, the sadness we felt from the theft. You did have a big response, didn't you? People gave money and, and there was a page set up and people were able to donate. That must have been quite a pleasant surprise to see the reaction from the public. Yeah, it was amazing. And, and we raised enough money to, to make back what was lost and to install a new CCTV service. So it, for us, you know, at the end of the day, it felt like a moment where something happened that was sad and regrettable. But actually, it meant that the community came together and... And it was such an encouragement to see that people, yeah, value the space enough. And Mim, coming on now to, to speak about your work in prisons. Between 2014 and 2017, you worked in a high security women's prison as an art teacher. Mm-hmm. What was your motivation for taking that role? Um, I took it initially because um, it involved chaplaincy. Um, and we worked as a chaplaincy assistant as well. So I ran things like the Alpha course and prayer groups, Bible studies and um, and that actually comprised just about uh, 20% of what we did. But uh, what the majority of the time we spent in the prison was being an, um, an art teacher and providing um, space for people to express themselves and think about what they want through art and through um, creativity. It was an amazing space, an amazing classroom. Um, but what kind of motivated me to take the job quite a lot, really, was because uh, I was excited to be able to kind of see what church looked like in a prison context. And tell me about what you discovered while you were there. I discovered a a very passionate and meaningful faith community who were much more honest than my version of of church had been and were much more upfront about their flaws and failings than church communities I'm used to, where people were kind of putting on their best foot. And it was just such a privilege to be able to share faith with those women in prison and to be part of the journey and, and I'm still part of the journey with lots of those women now who spend time in the cafe and uh, who are part of our, our community groups that I run with Handcrafted and who are housed by uh, the Handcrafted Housing Project as well. And Mim you wrote about your experiences in your brilliant book Jailbirds Lessons from a Women's Prison. Tell me about some of the women that you met. And so Catherine is one person and, and, and I kind of followed her journey in that prison a few times but for me Catherine's story was 
important because it really woke me up to to the effects of homelessness for women leaving prison. Um, in 2016, Women in Prison, the charity, said that homelessness after release could affect as many as 70% of women leaving prison. So that's a, a huge amount of women leaving prison and uh, that also increases chances of uh, re-offending, chances of abuse. These women are really vulnerable who are coming out and, and actually the re- response from Catherine was that she was desperate to get back in and she was desperate to get caught for doing something else and come back to a place which was safe where there was a roof over her head where she was free from abuse, free from violence. And for me, that story, not just Catherine, but you know, all the other women I met who had the same story around being desperate to find a safe home, for me, felt very shocking. And it felt very shocking that the thing that we could do for very vulnerable women who'd been victims of um, abuse and domestic violence who had grown up in the care system and um, the best we could provide for them for a society was a safe bed in prison. So when you say she was trying to get back back into prison I think a lot of people will think hang on a second surely most people try to stay out of prison. Can you just explain what you mean by that? So I guess that I mean that prison is a relatively safe space. If you're somebody who has come to from a background um, of abuse or a background um, where you're surrounded by drugs or violence, then prison actually provides quite a lot of respite from that. Um, For a start, you get kind of three meals served to your day. You have a roof over your head. Um, You're relatively free from violence in that there are kind of officers around you that you can call if you have a problem um, and who would jump in to stop fights. So if your life has been quite difficult and quite chaotic before you've come to prison and you've been a victim um, of abuse or exploitation, prison is actually a big respite from that. And I talked to a number of women who are homeless and, you know, receive threats and violence and abuse. And actually, they would love to go back to a safe, dry room um, where they won't be beaten up. And that's a very sad reality of our our failure to to support and house women who are homeless and women who are outside. But when you speak to women about it who are homeless, you know, it does seem like the the fairly logical and quickest route to a safe space. And in the book, you describe a particularly harrowing experience. So one of the women that you were working with, uh, a woman that you refer to as Paige, killed herself after the baby she'd given birth to was taken away. Can you tell me a bit about the impact of Paige's life on you? So Paige's story is quite similar to a number of women where she came into prison pregnant. Um, and because her sentence came quite a lot longer than the end of the birth, it meant that she wasn't able to keep her baby. But um, for a lot of women, um, the thing that's really damaging is that they're not told about what might happen and that there's very little kind of information being passed back to them from social services about what might happen and what the process might be. So for Paige, even going out to have the baby, she wasn't sure if she was going to come back with it or not. And for her, she was quite hopeful and she'd been engaging with lots of positive courses and had applied for a a place in a mother and baby unit. So it felt like a real shock coming back empty handed. Mm. And uh, yeah, it was very, very soon after Paige came back from the hospital um, that she killed herself in her cell. And that story is incredibly sad because of the death. But actually, involuntary adoption is something which happens every day, you know, and... 
and we don't give women enough support to be able to keep their children I don't think. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in church, we, of course, we talk a lot about adoption and, and, and lots of Christians with you know the best intentions are adopting children, giving them a, a stable family. But actually, I can't help but think, wouldn't it be better that we support families and we support women to look after their own children? Because often the women that, whose children are being taken off them are the poorest, the most marginalised. And you sort of think, well, if we focused our resources on trying to help them... Wouldn't that be better for everybody? Wouldn't that be better for the child? Wouldn't that be better for the mother and those families that can stay together? What would you say to that? I think you're absolutely right. Of course, it is a really good thing um, to adopt. I think as Christians, we're we're called to bring people into family. And of course, there are times when babies should be taken off and families and babies are unsafe and children are unsafe. Um, but there's some fantastic work being done um, by churches as well in supporting families. So someone like um, the charity Safe Families for Children, um, they provide um, support uh, for parents and respite for parents. Um, and that I've just seen uh, in, in where I've seen it locally just be a really fantastic model of how the church can come alongside families. And you talked about your chaplaincy work while you were in the prison. In what ways did you see God move? I guess the biggest way and the kind of most powerful thing I saw was people realising that they could be forgiven and people realising that they could forgive and people realising that because their identity was somebody who was valuable and created by God and loved, that they could have freedom um, from from where they'd been, and I remember talking to one woman who'd been in a gang, and and I said to her, um, you know, how does it feel now you've come to faith? Because lots of people talk about being given, you know, all these rules once you join the church, and suddenly you're very restricted, and you can't do this and you can't do that. And I said, you know, some people talk about, oh, you're in a bit of a cage, and you're you haven't got freedom because you know God says you have to do this and that. And she said to me, it's not a cage, it's a safari. She says, you know, you don't realise what it's like to feel trapped and held and imprisoned by addiction and by gang violence. Coming to Christ hasn't put me in a place where I've got this set of rules and this set of limitations. It's given me freedom. It's like I used to be in a cage and now I'm in a safari. And for me, that was just such a powerful analogy that she'd felt trapped. And actually, these set of theology and and guidelines and, and stories hadn't hemmed her in but had freed her you describe a lot of the female prisoners that you worked with as being some of the bravest people you've met i'm sure that the woman you were just describing is one of them can you just talk a bit about bravery and what you've come to understand about bravery through these women yeah i guess i say that because women in prison typically have overcome a huge amount of adversity or even a living with a huge amount of adversity some of the stories that you hear are really harrowing and a third of the women in the prison system have come from care. Half have been subject to childhood abuse and a huge number have been victims of domestic violence. 53% of women in prison are there because they've committed an offence to support the drug habit of somebody else. That's quite often a coercive partner. Those things are, for me, totally unimaginable. The idea that a person might have had to battle conflict and violence uh, and sexual predatory even as a child and and as a young person and for me that these women have come through that and actually 
still are kind and supportive and are really prepared to look after friends and support other people to recovery. For me, that's astounding. And you said that you, you're irritated by the fact that you, you feel you can't bring some of these women to a mainstream church with you. Why do you feel that they wouldn't feel comfortable in that environment? Um, I guess because the times when I've tried, um, people haven't felt included. And that's for a couple of reasons. I guess one, because um, church is quite a, a kind of sit down and be quiet type of place. I myself struggle with that structure. You know, I've had ADHD since I was a child and the idea of sitting and listening to a sermon feels stressful rather than life-giving. Another one is around literacy. So if people have not had a particularly good education um, and struggle with literacy, being handed, you know, a pile of, of liturgy and that's the way that you get to join in with worship is you have to read read off a page doesn't feel that inclusive and likewise kind of reading song words off a off a sheet there are kind of lots of little things as well which are much more subtle and the fact that if you come into church uh, and you've been uh, someone who's used drugs or been uh, a victim of domestic violence um and are typically not from a kind of middle-class background, then actually there's some really subtle pointers. This isn't your space. And that those subtle pointers might be that the person speaking up the front sounds different to you or their cultural references are different to you. And that people who sound like you and look like you and have your experiences aren't leading the church. They might get wheeled out to do a testimony but they're, they're rarely leading the church. And I think that itself provides a barrier. How could churches be a more welcoming place for ex-offenders? I think the first step is to recognise that you're not sort of providing a, a cosy, gracious charity service to these people, but actually you're going to learn and be taught by people from different backgrounds. And that's a really important distinction. I think quite often... We're good in the church at creating charity cases and we're good at deciding we want to help people, but we're less good at empowering people to, to leadership and empowering them to, to get involved, not as a, a service user or a charity case, but as a participant. I think that's really important to create space for people to get involved, even when the way they tell their story is different to what your church is used to. That's a really significant thing. But I guess as well, create different types of church, sitting down in the pews and isn't right for everyone so is there an opportunity where your church could have some weeks doing something different or it could look different well Mim it's been such a pleasure to speak to you today thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to have a chat thank you Megan it's been so lovely to be on Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue former Blue Peter presenter Simon Thomas had it all a successful TV career a loving family and a strong faith but when his wife died, his world fell apart. In the latest issue, Simon talks candidly about grief, unanswered prayer, and why death is not the end. Plus, Artie Kendall writes on the silent divorce between word and spirit. Nick Page tells us why questioning the Bible is a biblical thing to do. And the best-selling Christian author, Philip Yancey, shares his insights on the state of the global church. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. World-class Bible teachers, including Albert Moeller and Alistair Begg, are coming to London. Ligonier Ministries' first ever UK conference is taking place this September, and you can go free. You'll get two tickets worth £118, completely free of charge when you subscribe to Premier Christianity magazine. 
Subscribe now and get your free tickets to the Light of the World Conference at premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like a copy of our latest edition, you can get one absolutely free. Just head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample type your details in we would be happy to send you a copy of the latest issue of the mag completely free of charge but today here on the profile on this week's show i am speaking to steve maltz steve is a self-described maverick he's the founder of salt shakers an online christian community which explores the hebraic roots of the church he's also the author of over 20 books including how the church lost the way the land of many names towards a christian understanding of the middle eastern conflict and most recently into the lion's den a christian response to cultural marxism political correctness and victim groups he was once called the bill bryson of theology and christian history and steve it's great to have you in the studio welcome to the program thank you i've heard that quote for many many years <laughs> so uh, so here on the show we always like to to go back to the beginning and hear about a person's life growing up I understand you grew up in a secular jewish home tell me more about that absolutely um Yep, my I was brought up in London. Um, in terms of being secular, it's it's very much the traditional side. So my family would have been very um, traditionally Jewish in terms of cultural things, but the religion side, it was a case of didn't do the Shabbat, but we did Passover once a year, and that's about as religious as they got. And it's only because there's a lot of food involved. <laughs> so that's my introduction to <laughs> everyone. Everyone loves Passover because you yeah. know roast roast lamb and roast potatoes. Who could who could turn it down? I mean, that's quite common though, isn't it? For a lot of Jewish families, even yeah. today, even yeah. if they describe themselves as secular, you would always celebrate Passover. Yeah, um, because it is a very family thing, and you can get you can get uh, family members you haven't seen for ages, and it's it's a good excuse just for what they call a fresh up, which is basically eating a lot and and just enjoying themselves. You yeah. Know? You got to university. I understand it was kind of probably university really where you first encountered the Christian faith. Is that right? Yeah, it's an interesting story because up to that point. Um, as a Jew, one thing you'd you'd never look at anything that that had any New Testament slant to it or anything about Jesus. It's just it's the word it's the the word that is never mentioned. Um, so I went to university, determined to live a normal life. So even my Jewishness I left behind. I just wanted to be like anyone else. Um, but God had other ways of dealing with that um, because in, on the last the last year the last term. Um, I basically fell in love with the girl who I've been working with for the last three years. It happened right at the end of the last year. And she was a, a born-again believer, like a proper Christian. Yeah. And when we sort of got together, she told me well, there's always an extra person in this relationship, an invisible person called Jesus. And that and that is the spark that just set me off. So was it at that moment yeah. that you, you met this girl and you, you became a Christian there and then? No. Oh, it's it's such a long story. That, 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 <laughs> so, so why why didn't it? <laughs> Why didn't it happen then if yeah. you were so impacted by it? Well, it's it's a problem you get in the Jewish community and probably in the Muslim community in that it, the worst thing that you can do, particularly as a Jew, is, is to become a Christian. So that was the problem. I went to, as a result of uh, this girl, I went to Israel, stayed on a kibbutz, met loads of interesting people. When I came back, um, my dad picked me up in the taxi at the airport and says, 
said to me, it's like a prophetic word, but in the wrong sense. He says, I hope you haven't become one of those Christians. <laughs> and and that that set me back 10 years. Wow. Because uh, the fear of losing the family was so strong. Sure. That it, that it actually set me back. Yeah. It was a yeah, really, yeah. really big step yeah. for you yeah. to. It was. Yeah. I, I guess. I guess some people would say to change religion. Now yeah. you may not see it that way no. anymore. But, no. but as far as you're concerned at the time, or your family it, were concerned, it, it at the wasn't time, just that's... changing religion. In fact, they wouldn't have minded if I've become a Hindu right. or a Buddhist. But but you're following the enemy. For them, the the Christian the Christian religion was the enemy to the Jewish people, and that is the sad history of Christian anti-Semitism, mm. and that's the effect of it. So what happened yeah. next in your faith journey? <laughs> well, I'm married, and Monica, and Monica was on a, a, a similar spiritual search, and we came together, we got married. I became a believer, um, in a sense. It, it was in my head, definitely, but mm. not totally in my heart until something happened. Um, I think it was an argument I had, I had with her. Uh, before the argument, I... Funnily enough, I went to a a um, mind, body, and spirit ex- exhibition, which is really dodgy. It's all the stuff about the occult because my search—I was into a spiritual search. And mm. Christianity was one aspect of it, but I was looking at all other sorts yeah. of things. So I went to this mind, body, um, and spirit exhibition. There was a stand there called Mustard Seed, a Christian witness, uh, fantastically brave people. They gave me a name of a church and a name of a person. Who I, if ever I came through there, that's where I should go. So to cut a long story short, uh, there's one day I had a row with Monica. She threw something at me. I went, <laughs> I can't remember exactly. I I left uh, the house, uh, picked up my wallet, and this piece of paper came out, and I knew that I, I I was at decision time. So I drove five miles to this church, went up to the vicarage. The the pastor was there, very rare because he's he's a um, is all over the world normally. And I just sat at his knees and says, "Well, I want to become a Christian. <laughs> you know, what do I have to do?" And that was it. And, that, and it and it went on from there. Quite a quite a kind of dramatic yeah. encounter in the end yeah. there with just yeah. such, being, I guess being ready. The time was right. The time was right. The Holy Spirit was nudging me for many many years, and you know I'd lost ten years really. Uh, but then you you look back and you can't change history, mm. and even those ten years had had a reason to it. Mm. So, uh, um, but what did happen, and this is the irony of the whole thing is that um, we finally decided to tell my parents. I had to tell them eventually. Couldn't, you know, couldn't hide. <laughs> you know, Sunday morning, where are you? <laughs> you know, um, And uh, um, we arranged it so that Monica looked after the kids. I took my mum out for a walk. Um, I even remember where I said this. I, I stood next to her and said, Mum, I've become a Christian. <laughs> and the reaction wasn't what I expected. She was intrigued. Huh. And a conversation came... Um, and I had a very rare word of knowledge and I said to her you know something um, if you pray about something that's really really big in your life I guarantee God will answer within a week wow (laughs) she took the challenge and she prayed for something very big it came through and she became a believer (laughs) and my sister as well yeah, you know, my dad's still holding on. He's ninety-two. You know, the oldest Jewish yeah. atheist in town. You know. <laughs> uh, but he he's seen everything, done everything, but he hasn't come through. Yeah. You know, some people from a Jewish background who turn to Jesus <laughs> wouldn't call themselves Christians. Instead, they no. call themselves Messianic Jews. It, w- would that apply for you? Or, um, or not? I'm very very wary of labels, and I, I did toy with it at, at some point, And people have called me that. I, I just call myself a Bible believer. Yeah. Um, I just don't don't like labels and and I, yeah the word Christian did grate on me for a bit but I I have no problems yeah. with it now. And you yeah. you think the word Christian grated on you because mm. of what you referenced earlier about Christian anti-Semitism yeah. down through the ages that for you growing up as a Jew this was just yeah. a word that you didn't like. I, I think so possibly but also I knew it would be a problem with my Jewish family 
uh, call himself a Christian. So you have to be very wary of the witness you are to others around you. And because uh, we had the problem then of we were we were the black sheep in our wider Jewish family. And there was one situation with my son, Phil, who you know very well. I do. So we, Phil yeah, works here at yeah, Premier. Yeah, well, we know well, him very well. Here's something you don't know about him. Ah. <laughs> um, when he was 13, we decided to, to give him not, not just a bar mitzvah, which you do at 13, but a messianic one. Ah. But the thing is, the wider Jewish family who came didn't know it was going to be messianic. <laughs> <laughs> so we got him into this hall. And uh, we did, it's very, very tasteful. But at some point they realised that there's someone up front who's sort of preaching at them from the Old Testament. Yeah, Jesus yeah. wasn't mentioned, but they immediately got got really worried and right. angry. And you could actually hear a lot of them were trying to drown out. They were so anti because of cultural reasons mm. that, that it was like, you know, with their hands over their ears or just talking so loud that they couldn't hear anything. And some of them hadn't literally hadn't talked to us since. Since that that one event or turned against us, because that shows you the problem. None of them are religious. Mm. It's all cultural Jewish people who just feel that we have become enemies, mm. and that's how strong it is. It's very sad, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Is, do you see part of your work now in trying to kind of bridge that gap? Yeah, not intentionally. Um, <laughs> um, when I became a believer, God made it absolutely clear that my work would be not not in Jewish evangelism, but to to explain to the church about its Jewish roots and try to make a change in the church at large which is why if yeah. you look at my books a lot of them are absolutely about that, yeah know? and we'll yeah. come on to that uh, yeah. in a few moments time yeah. before we get there I really wanted to ask you about this um, I've been told that um, you created the first UK computer game for PC the, is that the, true the first Christian UK computer game ah. um, oh no 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 hold on no you're right <laughs> in the UK no. I was told y- yes. I was told the yeah. first UK yeah. One of the first UK yeah. computer games yeah. you had I, a hand in. I, I used to, my creativity was expressed through starting one of the early software houses in the 1980s when the home computer boom came with the Spectrums and the ZX81s and the Dragons and the Beep. I had all of them, but I picked on one computer, uh, the Dragon 32, and I became an expert on it and and got some notoriety and until it all crashed and I almost got bankrupt but but I wrote a game based on the the board game Risk called it Empire did very well and someone looked at it and says why don't you convert it for this new computer that's just come out called the IBM PC <laughs> I I did that and and it ended up in a catalog in a UK catalog as the only UK based uh, computer game for the PC and it was the first yeah so there you go that is a fantastic <laughs> claim to fame if ever I've heard one that is very very cool and I guess kind of technology has been a huge part of, of your story because as mm. technology has developed you've you've kind of gone with it haven't you whether yeah. it's kind of creating a radio station or, yeah. or writing a book yeah. or creating a, a you know making a computer game you've had, had all sorts of, uh, of different things along those lines mm. so um, which brings us to Salt Shakers which yeah. began in 1996 yeah. this is a kind of website online community hub you yeah. how would you how would you explain um, it it was always intended to be a, as a hub, but there wasn't any hub technology in 1996. <laughs> we tried things, so we, we created this website. We went through different phases, and but now it's a real community. But what's the what's the focus of it? What makes it different to any other kind of Christian community? What's the focus? Um, well, it's trying to show particularly Gentile believers that if they want to get into their J- Jewish roots, it's not 
there's nothing to fear. Mm. Um, there's always been this fear of this word Jewish, Hebraic, Israel, etc. It's about all oh, dragging you back into the law, into into you know tying you up in knots and yeah. you know legalism and all that. It's nothing like that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've I've had some experiences of, of going into mm. messianic congregations, and you know, many mm. of them are wonderful. But mm. I, I can remember myself walking into mm. to one in this country, mm. and it was a wonderful service and mm. teaching. And then at the end, someone came up to me and they got talking to me, and um, and they said, oh, you know, you need to not eat pork and yeah. i said but i'm a i'm a gentile believer i'm not jewish and if, if you're jewish and feel the need to keep the the, the law i'm absolutely yeah. fine with that from a christian point of view yeah. but but surely not for me and they said no even you as a gentile need to keep the law so so there are some I messianic know, communities that that feel yeah i guess the word would be legalistic yeah that's the problem um, and that's what puts people off and our aim in in the group that i'm a part of is to reclaim the word hebraic to take it away from a, a narrow-minded attitude which as you said it's just down to their particular interpretation I've, i i was invited to speak at a messianic fellowship up in birmingham somewhere i turned up and there were two gentiles there dressed as orthodox jews one was black one was white and it was it was ridiculous that they they had the kippah on the the tallit robes and trying to speak in hebrew and yiddish and and failing and i was absolutely appalled i didn't know why i was there and i changed my whole talk to try to subtly explain to them that a jew is a jew and a gentile is a gentile there's no way that you you can just change from being a gentile to a jew and that's at the heart of a lot of these fellowships that they do get it wrong not all of them. There's some yeah. wonderful fellowships out there. Yeah. But, so your yeah. so your focus instead mm. is is to help mm. Gentile Christians like me to yeah. understand why. I guess one of the questions would be: Well, why does it matter? Why does it matter? There's a Hebrew background to the Bible, mm. and why should Gentile Christians look into it? Yeah, it's more a case of it, it. It matters that the church has got away from where it ought to have been. So, if Greek influence hadn't come in in the first century, second century, then we'd all be Hebraic because that is what the Bible is. The Bible has got a Jewish roots. It, it has. When you say we'd all be Hebraic, you mean we'd all be thinking in a Hebraic we'd be way? Thinking, we'd be thinking totally differently. Um, Anti-Semitism wouldn't exist, which means a lot of things that will bless the church, um, such as like the Hebrew festivals. You know, a lot of churches have... Well, there was a decision in the 5th century to, to obviously change the Sabbath from the Saturday to the Sunday, pass over to Easter which is basically going going from the Hebraic background to a pagan background. And that wouldn't have happened. And uh, and I think the church would have would have gone through the last um, 19th centuries yeah. in total blessing. We'll have to dig more into yeah. this. I mean, just, yeah. just quickly to pause on that, mm. on that point, really mm. interesting about the festivals. Because mm. as you say, most mm. churches that I'm familiar mm. with, I mean, th- there is, I think, now an increased openness to maybe celebrating Passover. But generally speaking, mm. you know, whether it's the Feast of Tabernacles or, yeah. or Passover or whatever, a lot of churches wouldn't do it. But of course, every church would celebrate Easter. Mm. And you're yeah. saying this is a change that came in in the 5th yeah. century that yeah. has completely yeah. altered the way we think. Yeah, it was Constantine. It was a Council of Nicaea from which you get the Nicene Creed. But what is less known is that he wrote some letters to the church at large to say that we we have to strip out anything Jewish. Um, any of you Christians who are seen in Jewish communities celebrating Passovers and all that, you, you're, you're to be kicked out of the church, basically. And from now on, he basically put the green light to to, to be anti-Semitic. And, uh, and, and that was the decision Sunday... You know the the day of the sun, the, the sun god, <laughs> instead of the sat the Jewish Sabbath. You know that's, that's all changed. I've and heard could, people argue on that point though that uh, wasn't it the case that if Jesus rose again on the Sunday, yeah. that's why you'd celebrate and have church on a Sunday rather than the Jewish. Sabbath? That's actually down to mistranslation uh, or misunderstanding in Revelation because it says 
um, I think John was talking about it was the Lord's Day when he had his. So people said because it was the Lord's Day, it was a Sunday. Um, but in fact, it was um, an adjective. It was the Lordy Day. It was actually so. The only justification, the pe- the only justification biblically they would have is that one verse mm. to, to say, "Well, it seems that uh, God has changed from a Saturday to a Sunday." Mm. But that was wrong, and uh, and um, we have to realise that it's justification after the event. Right. The event being anti-Semitic changing of the day from Saturday mm. to Sunday. You're saying that not only was this a change in day, mm. uh, change in festivals, but you, you've used the term a few times of, of anti-Semitic. And yeah. for you, this goes beyond just the church move, yeah. moving away from mm. its Jewish roots. Because we know, obviously, Jesus was Jewish. Most yeah. of the early church was Jewish. Yeah. Um, but you feel like when the church in the 5th century moved away from that that mm. opened the door to anti-Semitism now some people yeah. say that's a bit of a jump I mean yeah. it's one thing us modern yeah. Christians not celebrating Passover no. there's another thing to say that yeah. anti-Semitism came in absolutely and in fact it was a gradual process that uh, that was just the, f- the reason why it happened at that point is because the, the Roman Empire had become Christian because of Constantine but but it was gradually grown anti-Semitic right from as soon as the first generation of apostles died out who were all Jewish the next generation were the Gentile church fathers from all over the Roman Empire and very very early on anti-Semitism crept in very very and um, I have to give an example of Justin Martyr who was one of the early uh, church fathers you just got to read his stuff and it's uh, terrible the attitude they had towards the Jewish people is unbelievable when you think that these these were born again Christians supposedly uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and you know representative of the, of the, the church and yet there's a blind spot towards mm. Israel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm always shocked, yeah. even later in church history, yeah. when you get someone like Martin Luther, who yeah. you know is responsible for so much good in the church, yeah. you know, rediscovering the doctrines of grace and yeah. the Reformation, which you know every, almost every Protestant would look mm. to as, as you know a, an important moment in church history. Yeah. And of course, there are many negative sides to that, but one of the most striking, as you say, is, is the blatant anti-Semitism. He yeah. wrote this pamphlet on the Jews and their, their lies. lies. He yeah. advocated burning down synagogues. And I guess a lot of Christians even today yeah. are unaware... No. of this history and no. I guess all of this partially explains mm. some of your testimony your background in and what you've talked about yeah. already with, with yeah. Jewish family kind of disowning you because as far as they're concerned mm. this new religion you've joined Steve is, yeah. is responsible for persecuting your people absolutely and uh, you know with the Martin Luther thing um, you know he was obviously a great man as you said but and, and it was only on his latter years he'd started off quite positive towards the Jews but got no conversions <laughs> <laughs> and at the end, he just he just went crazy. And all the things that you said, you know, it, it got worse than that because Hitler used his words as a justification for the Holocaust. So, so there's a, a legacy there that mm. is horrific. Yeah. What's the right response for Christians nowadays? I've I've heard some people say there needs to be some sort of repentance uh, to the Jewish people. Mm. I mean, what would that look like in practice? Mm. And is is that the way we should mm. be thinking? Um, I've seen I've been to places where that that has happened. Uh, but unfortunately, the people who are repenting are those who are pro-Jewish anyway. They have nothing to repent for. And I can't see how individuals can repent for the actions of their forefathers. There needs to be education, first of all. And, and there needs to be a spiritual... There's a spiritual element to it because anti-Semitism at its heart is a spiritual blight and it's it's satanic um, and i can i can give you all the justification for that but we haven't got it'll take me two hours to go through the whole thing <laughs> haven't got but, quite got two hours but but to be to be quite honest uh, the evidence is in and one big evidence for me is if you ever meet anyone who is a an intercessor um i've spoken for uh, intercessor groups like lydia who are like 
lady intercessors from all over the country, you will find intercessors. Every intercessor who's a real intercessor will be praying for Israel and the Jewish people. They know that they are close to God's heart. Um, so th- what I'm trying to say is that the more spiritual you get, the more closer to God and the Holy Spirit you get, the more you realise that that Israel is important mm. and the Jews are important. I know when you first started writing about Israel, one of your booklets was titled The Idiot's Guide <laughs> to the Middle East. And I think uh, the publisher changed the name. Yeah. Um, but for those who kind of identify with that and say, uh, you know, maybe wouldn't call themselves an idiot, but they'd say, I'm a Christian. I don't know anything about Israel or the yeah. Middle East. First of all, why does it matter? It matters because it's history um it's real life and it's events that affect how how you feel about certain people so if you're going to follow an alternative history you will think that israel and the jews are the great um oppressors of the palestinians or that the jews are working in the background you know to control the world if you're going to follow false news that's and the only antidote to false news is is true news and and that book that I wrote, the, the pamphlet, it's it's just pure history to show the the facts of what happened over the last 150 years, mm. um, and that's only to do with the politics and the history, not the spiritual side, you know. But if it's just dealing with uh, politics and history, there'll be many Christians who say, well, that, that's fine. You know, I, I don't know anything about the politics or the history of Indonesia. Mm. And I don't know anything about the politics and history of, of Israel. I mean, what, it's the same thing as far as a lot of Christians are concerned. It's just another part of the world. And, and they're busy getting on, mm. you know, evangelizing and, and running churches. And they think, well, why is there this obsession in parts of the Christian mm. community with Israel? Well, if they're obsessed by the Bible, they're going to be obsessed by the people of the Bible. <laughs> and that's the thing. There's this cutoff. And that's why a lot of churches don't even preach from the Old Testament. You know, we are New Testament Christians. It's almost like, and and this is a heresy. And and I can give you the background to. I can give you the name of it. It's, it's Marcionism. It's a heresy that was kicked out in the second century, and now goes under the name of replacement theology. But it's a heresy, total heresy, which basically says that anything to do with the old, which is the the Old Testament, the Jews. Even the God of the Old Testament, who was a bit nasty in their point of view, um, is to be discounted and we follow the New Testament, the, the Jesus, and we are the new people of God, Christians. And this is cut off between the old and the new. It's still there subconsciously in a lot of Christians and they don't realise it's there. And it's up to the teachers and the preachers to, to put them mm. right. But a lot of them are wrong as well. So <laughs> I, I, I am picking up a bit of a theme here, Steve, that a lot of people are wrong in your eyes. Uh, we'll have to try. Uh, I might have to ask you to justify yourself on yeah. a few points there. Yeah, sure. I mean, what, what would you say, though, to those who perhaps look at even just the title of your books, like mm. the church, you know, the, um, how the church lost the way? Yeah. Or even what you just said there about yeah. there's heretics and yeah. these people don't have the truth. I mean, some people yeah. might look at your work and say this all sounds a bit negative. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, it's just the cross that I bear, unfortunately. Um, I'm an outsider looking in, um, and there are others like me. And it's important. We are more important than people realise, because otherwise, no one's ever stirred up, and we we think that what's happening now is is good in every way. But anyone that's followed Christian history will know it is actually an horrific story. Not just how they dealt with the Jews, but any other fringe group, even other Christian groups, were persecuted who were actually following the true gospel. It, it really is a bad story, and so on. And and that book, um, in fact, the second book, How the Church Lost the Truth, gives the whole story. Mm. But the, the the title you mentioned, How the Church Lost the Way, simply means um, the church of the first century was called The Way. 
and it's simply saying is there's a difference between the church when it was called the way mm. to where it is now yes you know and that's all it's just the story. Uh, yeah i think yeah. a lot of people would agree yeah. with that and there's yeah. there's a lot of movement among many evangelical christians mm. to go back to the early church yeah. so people will read acts 2 and yeah. they'll see you know this was a real community that broke yeah. bread together that met together that yeah. worshipped and yeah. um you know a lot of church you talk to a lot of churches yeah. they'll say we want to get back to the early church yeah. doesn't work and i'll tell you why um um Going back to the 70s and 80s, there was a whole new movement called the House Church Movement. That was what they said. Let's go back to the simplicity. We'll come out of our denominations. We'll meet in our houses and we'll follow the Acts 2 model, etc. Um, you look at them now. <laughs> they've all... Um, they've got uh, you know marketing plans <laughs> there's structures they've moved to, they're now denominations in their own right and the reason for that is the mindset you could go back to the second century uh, so the first century and read acts and say we want to be like that but you've got to think like that as well in order to make it work you have to think like uh, jesus and the early jewish believers it's called the hebraic mindset and we mentioned it earlier there's a big difference between the hebraic mindset and what we right operate so what is the difference um well we we're brought up in in a greek world you know um and you can say the greeks brought a lot of good stuff and we're talking about the ancient greeks of the like the fourth century bc etc um aristotle plato mainly um and it's brought great scientific progress and it teaches us to think logically and everything about our world is is on the foundation of logic mm -hmm. and um and thinking you know it's the yes. mind at the center of everything yeah. you know um that is not the hebraic mindset the hebraic mindset at the time of jesus is totally with god at the center and revelation um and faith as being the the, the central the central principles obviously the rational mind is still important mm. faith and reason go together but you can't have reason without faith faith is the all important yeah. you know you read the book of james and sure but those that. who were leading the yeah. house churches in the 1970s yeah. saying we want to get back to the book of acts would, yeah. would agree with you that faith has yeah. to be at the center god has to be at the center yeah. and you know people would say well those small churches yes mm. they have grown they've put structures mm. around themselves they got marketing plans because yeah. actually they were quite successful and they, mm. they grew in size yeah. um but they haven't they, the argument would be they haven't lost the concept of there being faith at the center and, and god at the center no that Okay, that, that is probably one principle, but it's not all the principles um, because the, the natural outcome of truly having God at the centre is is to have a faith that, um, that will actually, um, when you look at the world and you look at, say, the more liberal expressions, you say no to that. I'm going to have the faith of Jesus. I'm going to have the faith of the early Jews, which means when I read the Bible, I'm going to read it primarily as, as the plain truth. I can spiritualize it afterwards, but when when God says He creates the world in six days, then and that goes against the grain, you know, and and I think you there there is there's a lot of discomfort in in actually following the Word of God, as Jesus found it quite easy to, and so did the early disciples, because of our scientific progress and because of other factors like multi-denominationalism, um, multiculturalism, etc it's very difficult to follow the plain words of jesus today but you have to that's the hebraic mindset is um when jesus says he's the only way to god that's it we can't compromise 
I'm Sam Hales, and you've been listening to my interview with the Christian author Steve Maltz. Before that, you were hearing Megan Cornwell in conversation with Mim Skinner about her new book, Jailbirds. If you missed any part of today's show, or you'd like to check out our archive of many hundreds of different interviews with leading Christians from all walks of life, why not go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile, where you can download the profile podcast. You can also search for the profile wherever you normally get your podcasts from. Click subscribe and why not give us a rating and a review while you're there it really helps other people to find the show so if you are listening to this as a podcast we'd really appreciate it if you could just take two minutes to give us a rating and a review well that brings us to the end of the show this week we'll see you next time